from the Barcelona Lighthouse to Hither Hills, from the Williamsbridge Oval to Prospect Park. It's 5 p.m. in the five boroughs and across the 62 counties. And so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show about the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, good to see you. How are you doing? You as well, quite well. There is, as always, a lot going on in city and state politics. <laughs> I can't wait till we have a show where we talk about how there's nothing There's going nothing on. happening. Wait till the dog days of summer. No, uh, it never happens anymore. So uh, there's a few things folks should know that are going on, but we have two main guests today. So two areas that we'll focus on. We've been covering this public advocate special election that is hurtling towards us. We're under two weeks now until the February 26th special election for New York City public advocate. Mark it down if you haven't. Get out and vote. Open to all voters across the five boroughs. We'll be continuing with our candidate guest this week with former city council speaker Melissa Mark Viverito. And then the second part of the show, we'll be joined by Rita Passarell, who is uh, a former legislative aide in the state assembly and a member of the sexual harassment working group whose advocacy led to a hearing today in Albany on sexual harassment in the workplace. She's going to join us from Albany to discuss that hearing, her testimony, her group's advocacy, and other things that went on during that hearing. And for folks who are interested in learning more about the public advocate race beyond today's conversation, I want to mention that we have spoken to several of the many candidates on the ballot for February 26th. That's Tuesday, February 26th, when you will vote for the citywide office, a special election to replace Letitia James, who, of course, is now the state attorney general. Uh, If you can find those interviews on the WBAI website, on GothamGazette.com, CityLimits.org, there's also a voter's guide at CityLimits.org that has a lot of information about all the candidates, including links to many of the excellent articles Gotham Gazette has done. So that's important. No excuses. To, no excuses. Not you to cannot, be informed. You cannot be informed. Not to be ready to vote. So there's a lot out there. Uh, and we also have a Max and Murphy podcast stream you can find if you like to listen on iTunes or your favorite platform. Just before we get to Melissa Mark Viverito in just a couple minutes, uh, who is seen as one of the front runners, certainly in this race to be the next public advocate, former city council speaker. Uh, a few things going on that folks should be aware of that we don't have time to dive into, but you know we're deep into the we're we're in the early stages, but we're right now in the thick of budget season, including at the state and the city level. Mayor De Blasio released his preliminary budget, and then on Monday he went to Albany to testify at a state legislative budget hearing. Um, talking about cuts and cost shifts that the governor's proposed that he doesn't like, talking about the need for sustainable funding for the MTA. You know, we're right in the thick of another budget season. Yes, and other budgetary items were on the table this week when the governor went to Washington to talk to federal officials, including the president, about the impact of SALT and the changes to the state and local tax deduction, what that's apparently doing to New York State. Uh, And more locally, Mayor de Blasio was planning to move to travel to New Hampshire later this More locally, week. less locally, yes. Uh, to, um, if nothing else, spur speculation about potential presidential ambitions. Uh, but he has canceled that trip to deal with the uh, fallout from the tragic shooting last night of Detective Brian Simonson, what appears to be a friendly fire incident in responding to, uh, to a robbery. Uh, something that will obviously be the source of uh, the topic of much investigation in coming uh, days and weeks. Yeah. 
terrible tragedy last night. Another officer also uh, shot but expected to recover. Um, and now we have the mayor uh, who was reacting to that in real time last night and talking uh, about it today. And there will be an NYPD investigation of exactly what happened. Um, but then, as you mentioned, also, you know, this is one of these examples. This is a more extreme, tragic one. But one of these examples of why it is very challenging for a mayor, especially a mayor of New York City, to entertain these national ambitions. There are always things happening in the city, again, some more extreme, some more tragic than others, um, that pull you back in or make you cancel plans and raise these questions. At the same time, the mayor got a question about sort of that dynamic at a press conference today. And he actually said, you know, running a city gives you the kind of experience that that you should have if you want to run the country. And that was sort of his his spin on why, yes, it may be hard to do that, but there but there are also uh, benefits to your profile from being a chief executive of a, of a city, especially, of course, New York City. We'll come back to the topic of Bill de Blasio for president another time. You've had some great thoughts on that that you've tweeted, um, and I'm eager to discuss that with you. But I think let's dive in today to our first guest here on Maxim Murphy on WBAI, and that is former New York City Council Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. A pleasure to be back on WBAI. Yes, I produced for many years. <laughs> and what what was your uh, what was your show on WBAI? It was a public affairs show called Latino Journal, and it was about Latino politics or the politics from the perspective and the lens of the Latino community. Um, and did that for ten years. Wow. I knew that, but I didn't know all the specifics. Well, I would say around here that show is is still talked about as the gold standard for public affairs shows. So we, you know, we aim we aim for that. Every week. We're we're gunning for it. Tell us about your your run for public advocate. Obviously, you were you know until it seems very recently city council speaker, although that is more than a year ago now. Why run for this office? What's the what's the purpose? I think, look, any opportunity to serve the people and the public uh, is really an honor and a privilege. And so, you know, I have a track record of success. I've been able to really tackle some really difficult issues, challenging issues. Uh, Everything I've done is through the lens of creating more equality, more justice in the city of New York, impacting positively the lives of New Yorkers, of trying to, um, you know, correct wrongs historically uh, through trying to right-size the government and policies, procedures. So, you know, I have that track record, and I'm very proud of that track record. Uh, When the opportunity, right, when Tish expressed an interest in running for the vacancy, uh, that happened uh, and then that occurred at the state level, you know, I automatically knew at that point that she would win. I, I obviously supported her, but my concern immediately went towards the lack of female leadership in the city of New York and that having been very involved and active in talking about the drop in the number of women in the city council and knowing that that drop has, has occurred, that at a citywide level, we were going to see a vacancy where no voice of women would be there um, was very concerning to me and was something that I wanted to uh, discuss and talk about. And, and so in talking to people about it, it started coming about like, well, why don't you think about running? Uh, and so that's one of the reasons and that I had a lot to offer. And people are tired. Right? There's a vacuum in leadership. People are tired of government not being responsive. Uh, people want a fighter. People want a coalition builder. People want someone who can get things done and try to cut through the bureaucracy uh, and sometimes cut through the BS, right? And so I think that that's definitely where we are in New York City, and I've stepped up for the challenge. 
talk a little more about the um, the lack of, uh, you mentioned female representation at uh, in city government period, and especially at the citywide level. You know, city politics is where ideology becomes concrete. It's very practical. It really is where the rubber meets the road. Based on your experience or what you see ahead, where will that voice, where has that voice in your experience, and where will that voice make a difference in terms of policy discussions? Where does the <clears throat> perspective of a woman among top citywide officials, how has that how has that mattered concretely? It matters greatly. You know, I've been someone that has always stood up for representative government. And I believe that the perspectives and life experiences that we hold, whether we are Latina or we are a woman um, or we are uh, of any sort of other nationality, ethnicity, race, uh, you know, those things matter. And we can't make well-informed and impactful decisions if that perspective and point of view is missing. And so I always talk about how when it comes to women's voices and having had Julissa, who I appointed as chair of finance, uh, that her and myself kind of shepherded the legislation that has to do with providing feminine hygiene products in our public schools and our correctional facilities. That's critical, right? And that really has impact. We don't understand uh, the trauma that for a small, uh, a young woman, right, who doesn't have means and uh, maybe in the middle of school session and something happens. Well, that was critical. And when I talk also about the fact that recently the mayor and the, the commissioner of the police department talking about the crime stats. And yes, we continue to be the safest city, something to be proud of. But there's been a, an increase, right, 29% increase in the reporting of rapes. And that was no conversation about that, absolutely no mention about that. And that troubles me as a woman living in New York City. I want to know from my leaders that that is something that matters, is important, is a priority, that you're going to do everything possible to continue to make this city a safe city for all of us. Um, And so that absence of even a mention, I think, is a prime example, right, of, of how there's a void and a vacuum. And that that, to me, is troubling when you, again, are talking about this so-called progressive city, uh, where we've seen all these changes happening at the state level, at the, at the national level, and we're falling behind uh, on, the, on both the representation of women in the city council and now in terms of citywide leadership because we're missing a large piece of our voice and our experience there to shape the way that we look at things and, the sh- and, the, and what we eventually do about it. So um, I think it's critical, and that, as I said, that's one of the reasons that I also decided to jump. And I'm clear. I'm the most experienced out of all the candidates. I have the greatest track record of success and accomplishment, and I want people to vote for me because I'm the most qualified candidate. But you cannot, and I don't feel um, that, that it's right to not also mention the void and the vacuum that exists when it comes to representation and that our government is not representative of those that it, it governs over. So what you just mentioned about your experience actually leads uh, me to the next question. Um, we're talking one week from the first televised debate and one week until the second, and then we're going to be right up to uh, the 26th when, when folks vote pretty quickly. Um, but in the first televised debate, there were 10 of you, and it seemed like um, several of your your competitors um, were critical of you on, on multiple occasions, and, and you pushed right back. What was your takeaway from that debate and, and some of the criticism? that came to you from city council members who uh, were your colleagues uh, and then also from, you know, some others on the stage who weren't in the city council with you, but, um, you know, criticized you on a, on a few different issues. What was your general takeaway from, from that? 
It's politics. I, you know, I don't, uh, obviously in a setting where you have 10 candidates and such a limited amount of time, uh, you can't get really wonky or in the weeds. And, and so people will take quick hits, uh, which a lot of times are unfair. People may have a different point of view on how to approach things. Uh, but I worked uh, extremely well with my colleagues. I was extremely supportive of my colleagues, regardless of whether or not they voted for me um, and uh, or originally supported me. I was voted in unanimously. But, you know, I, I was very much, uh, you know, it is what it is, as they say. I'm very clear that I will, and that's what my messaging is, to speaking directly to voters, to talk about the impactful things I've done when we talk about shredding Rikers Island and, and the inhumanity of what that institution symbolizes. You know, when we talk about decriminalizing low-level nonviolent offenses to prevent criminal summonses from being issued to black and brown New Yorkers, when we talk about clearing 750,000 warrants with four out of the five DAs, you know, just on and on. These are policy decisions, initiatives that I led on against resistance to create a more fair, equitable city. And I'm proud of that track record of independence, of standing strong, of, um, as we say in Spanish, no tener pelos en la lengua, you know, you just... Uh, are not going to be deterred or stopped, uh, and you and you move forward. It's a focus and a vision that I had, and that's what it's about for me. It's about how do we make New York City a better city for everyone, and this position of public advocate is that independent watchdog to the mayor, making sure that the laws and the policies we put in place, that city agencies are now responsible for enacting, that they're doing so in an effective way. We have laws that we we put forward on reporting by the police department. The NYPD is flagrantly defying laws that are in place and denying us information that was requested through law in reporting requirements. That's what we can do as a public advocate, is holding government accountable and making sure that what we put forward is being responded to. And so I really have a creative vision. I look forward to this, you know, to, to winning this uh, seat. Uh, again, I've been having, and very aggressively being in the five boroughs, been very well received uh, in terms of, of people's responses. Uh, in the debate, I got a lot of positive feedback, you know, and, and I think it showed that I am firm, strong, and, and very much mindful, you know, that I will get my message out there regardless of, of the criticism. I think some of it may be fair. A lot of it is not, uh, but that's part of the politics of it all. So um, I want all voters, all listeners to obviously look at all the candidates, make their own choices, uh, study up. There's a wide field and, and different people have different platforms and such. But that's a caveat to saying a lot of the conversation is out there that there's maybe three or four front runners in this race. And your name is always mentioned along with city council member Jamani Williams, assembly member Michael Blake. And sometimes, you know, folks say maybe there's a path for Eric Ulrich. Maybe there's a path for a couple other folks. Um, if you could, how would you differentiate for voters just one thing that separates you from Jamani Williams, one thing that separates you from Michael Blake? You know, you all have accomplishments. You all have platforms. How would you differentiate that for voters on those on those two other perceived front runners? I, I think I mentioned in my track record. This is not just about you know, these are tangible, substantive policy changes, laws. Uh, that I shepherded. These are the things that Alvo talked about have been things that I took the lead on against resistance. When we talk about making New York City a sanctuary city, when we talk about putting in place a legal fund for everyone that is facing deportation, that has become a lifeline for people in this time of Trump. 
when we talk about the warrants and when we talk about the criminal summonses, and we've seen an 89% drop in criminal summonses. And despite the opposition of the commissioner who said we were going to go back to the 1970s and New York City was going to be a hellhole, he would continue to be the safest city. You know, when we talk about the legal representation for tenants and housing courts, and now we've seen a 39% drop in evictions. I mean, this is substantive stuff. And, and so I'm very proud, and that's what differs me. It's about coalitions. You build coalitions around issues in order to move it forward. It's not about me individually. This is about the advocates. This is about the activists. This is about the people that have been doing this work for a long time that we validate, right, with saying, you know what, you bring up a valid point. There is a grave injustice happening here in the city of New York when you have Rikers, uh, when you have an ICE trailer at Rikers Island, and that we were funneling people into the deportation system. And I took the lead on that bill, and now we don't have ICE, we have, um, don't have ICE at Rikers, and that we now are trying to model, right, the state law, and that's what I'm pushing for, to have ICE out of our courts by modeling it after similar bills that we did here in the city of New York. Stuff that I've done, the Young Women's Initiative, the Muni-ID, this is all stuff that's being looked at nationally. This is stuff that has an impact, and that's what I believe is the power of being in New York City, is that we are the largest city. We are the most diverse city. We are the most beautiful city. And But everybody looks at us. So what we do matters. And so having... Policies that are impactful are ones that can be modeled across this country and that we can stand strong and proud that these are our values. This is what we stand for as New York City, and we want you to join us. We want you to model. Here, here, here's what we've done. Let's figure out how we can make it apply in other parts of the country. You're and listening so- to uh, Max and Murphy, and we're talking with Melissa Mark Viverito, a candidate for public advocate. If you want to call in and ask a question, the number is 212-209-2877. We have about uh, seven or eight minutes left. But, you know, you mentioned the Rikers um, scenario, and, and it is so important for folks to remember that while Bill de Blasio will get credit for being the mayor, that moved the city toward closing Rikers. It really was only because you you pushed him on that. And, and you just mentioned some of the other topics where you really were the motivating force to big changes in city policy. The top issue you mentioned on your website is housing. And within that is NYCHA. And that's yes. become obviously such a huge topic here. You had a front row seat to how the mayor and the city handled NYCHA during the mayor's first term. Uh, and I guess the question is, did you push him enough there? Were you aware? of the degree of problems that we now see as very evident in that system. Looking back, is there anything more you could have done on NYCHA? Look, NYCHA is an incredibly complicated creature. And, you know, this is where you don't have the time, right? And, and that's what I was saying on the stage at the debate. I said, where were all of these voices when it really mattered, right? When the, the, From the day I walked into the city council back in 2006, I was making NYCHA a priority at a time where Bloomberg and the city of New York was not investing anything into NYCHA, when the city council was almost doing nothing around NYCHA, you know, and I pounded the pavement uh, because I represented the most public housing along with some other, a few other colleagues that really put NYCHA front and center. Well, we started hearing people now talk about it, right? These were not invisible people in New York City. These were NYCHA residents that needed our voice. And so now from that point where there was zero investment in NYCHA to a point now that through the pushing and cajoling and everything, we have now seen an historic level of investment from the city, which is not enough. But going from zero 
to a $20 billion investment in NYCHA over 10 years is significant, right? And plus all the money that the city council puts in. The hearings that we've had around management, mismanagement, and, and changes that have potentially come out of that. Of telling people, look, we can't, we can't have NYCHA residents living within our midst and that we're just, you know, ignoring. Um, so there's been a lot, right? Ma- making sure that we have hearings at NYCHA facilities when it was around the boilers and it was around Sandy and all that. You know, so there's a lot. Yes, we have more to do, but thankfully we're at a point now where suddenly, you know, you know everybody seems to care. Uh, where were these voices before? The state has not done anything. You know, because the state has done nothing. There are laws that the legislature could put forward regarding NYCHA for more accountability. They could give us as a city more authority and more power over NYCHA, which has been asked for in the past. We could get a greater levels of investment. We haven't had that. You know, so everybody wants to talk about, oh, they're the big supporters of NYCHA. What have you done? Under my leadership, we had about two or three hearings about the MTA, despite the fact that the city has absolutely no authority over the MTA. I'd like to know how many hearings on NYCHA the state legislature has done. So, you know, I don't, I'm not aware of any, you know, and so don't talk to me about others saying that this is a priority when the actions don't model that, right? And so my history, my understanding of NYCHA is one where I am talking about creating a war room around NYCHA, where we have all the different entities of government coming together to really, you want to make this a priority, you really care about NYCHA residents, then I'm going to shine a spotlight as public advocate to make sure that we shame all of you into setting aside your pettiness and setting aside the pissing matches and saying the residents of NYCHA matter and we're going to all come into a room, figure out what resources we have jointly and how can we ensure that we get ourselves in a better situation here. Everybody has a responsibility here. It's not pointing fingers. It's not saying that it's this person more than the other. We have to ensure that this is a priority, and that's what I plan to do with my understanding um, and the passionate activism that I've brought on behalf of my public housing residents. So I wanted to ask you something about your experience as city council speaker that sort of came to mind when we've watched over the last um, week or so this situation play out with Ruben Diaz Sr., the city council member, who today by the city council was stripped of uh, the committee that he had been rewarded with um, basically for supporting city council speaker Corey Johnson and his ascent to the speakership. Um, And that, that seemed at the time like a political compromise that Speaker Johnson made. He got support from the Bronx County, including Ruben Diaz Sr., and then rewarded him with a new committee, despite the fact that Diaz Sr. had a history of homophobic remarks, uh, among other uh, controversial statements and, and bigoted statements. And Johnson had, has said now that he made a mistake in giving him the benefit of the doubt and, and basically making such a compromise. So uh, you called for Diaz Sr.'s resignation. We know where you stand on that. You've had a, a long history of, of op- opposition with him. What I wanted to ask you was if you've had situations or a situation where you've made a, a tough political compromise that that sort of came back to bite you like we saw with Speaker Johnson? I, I mean, I have to think about that. I'm not perfect. We're, none of us are perfect. Um, I've been able to admit mistakes I've made in the past. I, I can't be putting me on the spot that way. Nothing comes to mind right away. Okay. Not to say that there isn't anything. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we all have to, we, we all have to be accountable for our actions, right? And this individual, um, to me, is a pariah. Uh, he does not reflect the values we have in this city. Um, he did not get the majority of the votes, the majority of the votes in that race although it was divided because there were many candidates, but the majority of the votes combined 
uh, were more than the votes he got. So definitely there is a sentiment in that district that he's not um, representative of their values. Uh, and I've had my issues, you know, many, many issues. I've called him out on many times and um, I have been disgusted by his actions. And, you know, one thing is to hold your own opinion, again, which I don't agree with. But another thing is when you're stumping actively, when you're equating homosexuality with bestiality, when you're telling me that as a woman who believes in my right to reproductive rights, that if I access abortion services that I'm committing genocide, when this individual is constantly berating and diminishing... Do we lose this? I mean, I'm can't. You know, it's, it's hard. And it was hard for me yesterday. I did not expect to say what I said. But when I heard my co- former colleagues, Jimmy Van Bramer and Carlos Menchaca, saying how they struggled with their identity and they actually were questioning whether or not they should live because they were so conflicted because of the way society has treated LGBTQ people, it really broke my heart. And I couldn't take it anymore. So it is about in this individual. But we cannot enable individuals that carry these points of view. So we have to take responsibility as a society about that, too. Absolutely. So we're going to have to leave it there. We could we could probably uh, keep talking about dynamics at the council and things with uh, Ruben Diaz Sr. And, and Bronx politics and beyond for a while. But we appreciate the time. Former city Thank council so speaker much. Melissa Mark Riverito running for public advocate. Thanks for joining us here on WBAI. Thank you so much. Have a good one. And uh, this might be a good moment for us to uh, talk about this time of the year and time of the month at WBAI, where we are part of a large team of people trying to keep this station running and running well and paying the professionals who make our sound go out on the air to our millions or perhaps hundreds of fans. And so we want to remind people that this is uh, the pledge time and that uh, calling 516-620-3602 or going to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org now would be a great thing to do. Uh, ben and I know running small nonprofits that do public interest news, that it takes money, it takes effort, and that money is hard to find. Uh, and so your support is really crucial. This is a product that matters to you if you're listening now whether you listen every time or even just now it's got to be worth something uh, so go to that website or call that number make some sort of a donation um, support this stand up for it you know you uh, I'm sure support other causes with bumper stickers and tote bags and boycotts and likes on Facebook and if you believe in independent media that's going to ask some difficult questions um, you gotta you gotta pay up for it and we say it every week it's listener sponsored non-commercial radio here on WBAI where we're happy to have a home every week bringing you this show from 5 to 6 p.m. on Wednesdays and bringing you the latest in New York politics policy interviews with folks like former city council speaker Melissa Mark Favrito who we just spoke with as we have a number of candidates running to be the next public advocate of New York City. That was an interesting conversation with the the former speaker, Uh, obviously a person who does have a breadth of experience, there's no question about that, and has had a real stamp on the city as it is now. And that will be one interesting feature if she wins, and I don't know if that's going to happen, is that, you know, she will be um, uh, in some ways the chief ombudsperson and and really the chief check on the power of uh, Mayor de Blasio, who was a sometime partner, uh, sometime sort of reluctant partner on some of those policies she's talked about. And in some ways, she will be 
overseeing the implementation and, I guess, checking the progress of policies that she helped to craft, which is kind of interesting. It is fascinating, absolutely. And one of the most interesting ones, certainly, that she brought up, is, as she sees, is one of her crowning achievements is this plan, as you mentioned, that she brought the mayor along with on closing Rikers. And the fact that if she is the public advocate, that will be one of seemingly her main focuses and responsibilities. And if we had a little more time, we could have gone into more depth on that maybe. But um, she's going to have to sort of oversee, push, help along this plan to to close the Rikers jails and not just close the Rikers jails, but the open up new facilities in the boroughs or revamp the facilities that are there, convince local communities that it's you know not a danger, et cetera, et cetera. So that will be very interesting to watch if she is victorious. And that's that conversation about the land use uh, element of the new locations for the four borough jails is at a critical juncture now. And that's a place where some of the tension inherent in the public advocate job between elevating community voices in neighborhoods where they don't want these facilities to thinking about the citywide need for a rational and humane criminal justice system, uh, the public advocate in some ways will have to balance those. And so that will be really interesting. That 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 effort to close Rikers, I think people probably don't realize just how important the next few years will be, few months will be, uh, in that as the uh, new sites go through the Euler process, and also in Albany as people talk about all the different kinds of reforms that will feed into that, whether it's bail reform, discovery, speedy trial, even changes to the parole system are very important because so many folks who end up in Rikers are folks cycling back into the system because of parole violations. Um, so a lot of that is really on the stove right now, and we're shooting to win, which is not necessarily likely or going to happen, um, she'd be in an interesting position to to be part of that debate again. It would be fascinating to see her as public advocate and Mayor de Blasio, who, who you know, I mentioned how Corey Johnson, part of how Corey Johnson became speaker, well, certainly part of Melissa Mark Verito becoming speaker was Mayor de Blasio's help and the effort to have them be partners uh, in city government. And they had a very productive partnership, whatever you think of the outcomes. Um, and now, you know, she's distanced herself from him over time. And certainly the Rikers issue was one where she was working with him, but also pushing him publicly. Um, And there were some others. And it would be very interesting to see what their dynamic might be if they were both in citywide office. Now, you say we don't really know what the outcome is going to be. And that is very much a sure thing. You would have to think, as we've said, you know, Jamani Williams, Michael Blake, maybe some others also have a case to be made for their path to victory. Melissa Mark Viverito, and we just have a minute till our next guest, but you know, I don't know what her path is. She was city council speaker. People know her, but she's never run citywide before. She's never run statewide like Jamani Williams did. You know, that's, and that's the case for most of the other candidates besides Jamani Williams, but she's clearly staking her candidacy on her record as city council speaker. The fact that she represents someone with both a track record, as she said, and someone who would bring needed diversity to citywide leadership depends how many people are paying attention and who and you know the folks that that like that argument one thing we didn't ask her and i think on on my part anyway it was deliberate was the question that so many candidates get which is for public advocate which is is the office merely a stepping stone are they going to run for mayor and if you look at her issues page of her website melissa mark viverito it is a very ambitious list of policy goals far more ambitious than one might be able to accomplish with a staff of 45 and a budget 3.6 million dollars that the public advocate has. Uh, but to me, the question of whether she plans 
plans to run for mayor or not, you're not going to get a realistic answer to that. Um, but I think the question implies that it's a bad thing for people who are serving as public advocate to have that ambition. And I don't want to make that implication because I think we generally want people to perform well in their jobs. And, you know, in any position in life, you want folks to be thinking about performing well enough that they get a promotion. Uh, and I think it is quite possible that many of the folks running for public advocate do have their eye, could have their eye on higher office. Melissa Mark Vivarito would certainly be one of those. I think if this vacancy had not occurred, if Tish James hadn't become state attorney general, uh, her name was likely to be among the candidates for 2021 mayoral race anyway. Anyway, yep, absolutely. All these dynamics will be fascinating. You know, Melissa Mark Vivarito is one of the only people in this race who hasn't said, "I will, if I win, I will definitely not run in 2021. Just about all the other candidates, with the exception, really, I believe, of Eric Ulrich, the, the, the leading Republican in the race, have said, yep, I won't, you know, if I win this special election and I'm victorious again in the following election that would be happening later this year with a June primary and a November general, uh, I will serve out that term and then also most likely seek re-election in 2021, but not run for mayor. People break those promises all the time. We've seen Kirsten Gillibrand do it with running for president. We've seen Bill de Blasio change his mind on, I will absolutely serve my four-year, second four-year term. And now he's saying he's not ruling out running for president. Um, So, you know, who knows what happens with those promises, but she has not even made a faux promise or a seemingly faux promise. So uh, there will be a lot of fun things to discuss on February 27th when we'll be on the air the day after the the special election and very interesting to see. I think uh, we'll be joined next week by City Council Member Jamani Williams. It would be interesting to get his uh, comments on the race and his candidacy right before that second debate. And it will be very interesting to see what that second debate looks like. Because again, one of the signal features of this race, so many people on the ballot, so many people on the stage, so little time to go in depth. And you know, you've talked about some of the folks who have run um, races in the past uh, citywide. It's really only Jumani Williams. All these candidates have potential different uh, blocks to tap into. Uh, We've talked before about uh, Daniel O'Donnell, the uh, Upper West Side Assembly member. The fact that he is not a big name uh, hurts him in some ways, but the fact that he comes from a vote-rich area that knows him very well, has been voting for him for 15 or 16 years, um, boosts his chances. Uh, Maybe not as much as someone like Jumani Williams, who's run for lieutenant governor very recently, but but certainly a very realistic possibility that that a lot of these other candidates that we're not mentioning in the same breath uh, run very well on the 26th. And of course, depending on the outcome that day, we could be having very similar conversations, maybe not quite as many names uh, as the year goes on and we head toward a November election where this uh, whoever has won the special election will have to fight for their seat again and maybe in a primary as well. Ben, I wanted to ask you, I, I have to admit, I'm at this point, which is rare for me, uh, almost a fully undecided voter on this special election race. And I'm not asking you for an endorsement, but I'm curious, what questions are you going to use to kind of interrogate the candidates, not one-on-one, but what you've heard, what they've said, what you've read about them to make your choice? What should voters be thinking about as they head into the polls and have to decide among a, a long list of names, many of whom are very accomplished and substantive people? It's a great question. I think it's important for voters to think about it. It's something I've been thinking about. It's something I want to write a little bit more about um, leading up to the vote on the 26th. And when we recap the first debate, I worked on it with my colleague Summer Kershid at Gotham Gazette. Um, you know, we tried to include a little bit of this in the recap, which is if you want X in a public advocate, here's who said 
X, Y, and Z at the debate. If you're looking more for Y in a public advocate, here's who said X, Y, and Z. And, and it's because, you know, the position, like any elected position, has different responsibilities. And it's really up to people to judge, in part, sure, where the people are on the political spectrum, their records, but also what kind of person, what kind of approach do you want in this specific role? And for public advocate, I think one of the most important parts of the job that people need to be evaluating is who's going to hold the mayor accountable. And the you know the questions around Melissa Marfavorito's closeness with Mayor de Blasio are very valid, although I, I think over time she certainly showed herself to be an independent voice. Um, but reasonable to ask those questions. And you can ask some of those questions of some of the other candidates as well. Some of them have been critical of the mayor, but some have also worked closely with him. And even if you've been critical in the citywide role, how would you use it to hold the mayor accountable? And that's a very important question. The other issues are, you know, how good of a legislator are you? Because as public advocate, you you get to uh, introduce legislation still to the city council. So, you know, those are just two examples of parts of the role that people should be thinking about. Um and evaluating candidates on where they are on issues, but also what kind of leader they think they would be. And you have to think about how they would be as a mayor because the winner is very likely at some point to run for mayor.